You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. The idea is let's shake things up and let's look at place-based learning. Let's look at very individualized learning and let's see what happens when we kind of divorce ourselves from pinning all these expectations on standardized tests. You get all this excitement and you, you can sense that the kids are sort of, they've been liberated from all the downsides of standardized testing. Now, if you test well, that's a walk in the park. You're all, you're, you're all set. But what happens to the kids who are extremely bright and, and don't test well at all? How do you get real-world challenges, authentic kind of assessments, and how do you build units around those things that, that would challenge students in an interesting way but also add value to the community? Small schools are sustainable over time but need very, very different economic models, different teaching models in order to make them sustainable. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 112, Chartering Education, airing for the first time on Sunday, November 3rd, 2013. Today's guests include Susan Conley, author of Paris Was the Place and contributor to Maine Magazine, Glenn Cummings, President and Executive Director of the Maine Academy of Natural Sciences at Goodwill Hinckley, and John Denary, Head of School at the Harpswell Coastal Academy. Today's Chartering Education show was inspired by the article written by Susan Conley for the November issue of Maine Magazine. We know that kids learn differently and that no matter how kids learn, education is of paramount importance when it comes to health and wellness. Maine is working to find ways to educate our kids in new ways through programs such as charter schools. We hope you enjoy our thought-provoking conversations with Susan Conley, Glenn Cummings, and John Denary. Thank you for joining us today. enjoy being on the air with people who have um, spent time with me in earlier episodes of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, because it reminds me of the journey that we've been on, um, sometimes sometimes somewhat of a rough journey. It reminds me where we've come from and where we are now. And the individual who's across the microphone from me today is Susan Conley. She is one of these such individuals who I believe was in possibly the January of the first year that we were doing this show, not too many episodes in. Um, and at the time was talking about her earlier book, Foremost Good Fortune. Today she has written another book, and it is Paris Was the Place. She's going to talk to us about that, and she's also going to talk to us about her charter school article for Maine Magazine, um, a magazine for which she is a writer. Thanks for coming in. It's a treat to be back. Susan, you've been very busy, and you're at a very different place than when we last saw you. Um, 
foremost good fortune for people who I know are going to go back and listen to the prior interview, but just to, to give them a little bit of a teaser, is really um, more about your own personal, I don't want to say struggles exactly, but your own personal experience with being in China, dealing with breast cancer, or raising two small children, um, and, and it's very much a memoir. This book is a novel, two very different books for two different places in your life. Talk to me about that process. Well, I've been um, on a book tour um, these last few months talking about this um, territory I'm calling the middle place, which or the middle ground, coming out of memoir, moving into novel. Um, memoir is preordained. You know what, what happened in the story. Um, and then the struggle or the challenge, I think, is to find the story hidden inside the story. We all know the outer casing of our lives, but what's sort of the beating heart inside? Um, novel, for me, was um, infinite possibility. But if you look at the sort of facts of that novel, Paris was the place, a lot of it does line up with my life. You know, it's set in Paris in 1989. Oh, well, I lived in Paris in 1988. Um, the narrator teaches refugee kids. Well, I've done that here in Portland. Um, it's not an autobiographical novel, which was a great relief. I didn't, I didn't want to write an autobiographical novel, but, but um, what I do is I pull, and I think we all do this in many different um, walks of our lives, we pull, we pull from different sort of parts um, to weave stories. So you didn't when you were in Paris, fall in love with a good-looking French <laughs> lawyer. And... I wish. I wish. No, but I was in love in Paris. So I knew what it was like to be in love with pa in Paris. So again, that was real life being woven into fiction. Um, and I, I do that a lot. I, you know, I, people have been asking me, how did you recreate Paris in, in 89? You know, I've been back subsequently, but, but I haven't lived there since then. And you know what? It's all there for me in my memory. I, I hold on. Um, I'm just one of those people. So um, I did a whole lot of research around um, let's get this, the street names right. Let's make sure we know every metro stop. Let's, let's take the readers to, um, to Paris in such a way that they feel they're, they're on the street. But, um, but I, you know, a lot of it was still, the emotional truth of it was still in my mind. It does make one want to travel. <laughs> As I was reading it um, over the weekend, I, I kept thinking to myself, wow, I've never been to Paris. I've never been to France. You know, and you describe the scene where um, Willie, the main character, is going with her French lawyer boyfriend, Macon. And that's how you pronounce it, right? Yeah. Macon. Yeah. Um, named after the city in Georgia, interestingly enough, they're going out to the beach and they're sleeping on the beach under the stars. And, and I was thinking to myself, why am I not doing that? You know, I, I need to book a plane ticket. So I think you do a really nice job evoking that sense of place and really um, enticing people to live this sort of adventure. Oh, well, thank you. That That's exactly what I was trying to do. I have this um, longing, this need to place characters in far off locations I guess including myself, <laughs> um, and then see what happens. Um, what is it like to be the outsider looking in? I like to get people out of their comfort zones. Um, I think the minute you get people on the road in transit, you know, I get Willie in a truck with her new lover going to the, to the beach in France, and everything's up for grabs. 
you know, what are they going to talk about? What are they going to learn? Um, so I, I can't stop doing that, I don't think. Well, it does seem as though um, in foremost good fortune, you really were the outsider. You were living this life, and you describe it in the memoir. And not only were you living the outsider life as somebody who is in China, um, as an American, but you were also living an outsider life as somebody who had breast cancer, hanging out with people who didn't have breast cancer as a young woman. Um, now you're you're back in Portland, and you're living kind of an insider life. You're living a life that's really more one you've always lived, but you're still writing about living the outsider life. Mm. Why is that so interesting to you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, maybe I'm terrified of stasis. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, Maine is my home. It's, it's been my home my whole life, but I've lived away from it so often, maybe almost more than I've lived here. So it's like, a, for many people, I think Maine has that, it's like the compass, um, but you, you have to keep like orbiting. You have to keep stretching. Um, and I'm lucky because I married a man who has the travel lust as much as I do, and if not more. So he thinks nothing of, you know, hopping on planes to go to remote um, locations that would take, you know, two-day bus rides and then maybe a camel and a, <laughs> a horse. So um, it's great to put yourself uh, in, in um, sort of dynamics where – um, p- other people are also sh- sort of forcing you to shake up your comfort zone. Even within the story, even within um, the story in Paris was the place Willie travels from Paris. Now, Willie's an American. She's in Paris, and then she travels to India. So you really do like to keep people moving around and keep pushing them outside of their comfort zones. You know, it's, there's always one more level, one more layer. Yeah. The India section of the novel is an interesting one because it's, for me, it was a lesson in editing. I love travel so much, and I also love um, just locale and flavor. So I could have made the India section much longer. In fact, it was much longer. And then I had to ask, and I'm always asking this of narrative, and I ask this of my students. Um, I teach a, a great deal. And I, the question is, how much can the narrative hold? So we go to Paris. We're also in California a lot in my novel. Can we go to India? You know, can the novel hold India? And it turned out it could, but it had to be a very kind of stealth, very focused trip. You know, for a while it was going to be this sprawling kind of adventure. And then I, I made her, her have a very clear mission for why she was going. Willie was doing some, some research on this crazy, obscure uh, Indian poet um, and then the surprise in writing is you you land on characters you didn't know you'd meet. So she meets the granddaughter of, of the Indian poet. And the, this granddaughter is um, wildly charismatic and sort of curmudgeonly and, and also wonderful. And I kind of fell in love with her, and I didn't expect to. So then I had to keep India in because I, I got so attached to the characters. Um, and simultaneously, while... Um, Willie is going on this external journey. She's also dealing with things herself internally and dealing with things interpersonally. She's dealing with um, one of her students, Gita, who is being held in asylum in France. And um, they're waiting to see whether they can enable her to stay in France or whether she will be sent back to India. 
So she's so we have Willie struggling with that. We have Willie struggling with her new love. We have Willie struggling with her brother Luke, who falls ill. It's it's a lot. Is that also part of the question? Can the narrative hold? Yeah, and when the novel presented itself to me, it was all laid out like that. I had a, an image of a woman on a train in France. She was about 30 years old. She was Willie, and I didn't know her, but I really wanted to know her, and I, w- I wanted to capture a woman who had yet to have the big love of her life and who'd yet to have children, who was really still... Um, searching and everything was still unfolding for her and how exciting is that you know I think I was nostalgic for that time as well in my own life Um, and she very much had a brother who she was so close to um, and and this is where real life mirrors the fiction again because I I had lost someone very very dear to me um, to AIDS in the early 90s, um, he was really kind of a part of our family. And I needed to write about him. And I needed to honor him and, and celebrate him in the book. So, you know, he's there's a character that's very much based on him. It's not him. I mean, it, it, it moves so far away from him. And yet there's something very at the, at the core that's, that is my friend. And that was really wonderfully um, satisfying to get to do. It is very interesting for me because I've now um, read enough books written by people that I either know well or know somewhat. It's very interesting to read novels written by people um, that I'm acquainted with because I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, this feels like something that actually happened in this person's life or this is something that really rings true. And I felt that a lot as I was reading this book and I, I, I absolutely had the sense that much of this was stuff that you had some um, connection to personally. That's great. Yeah, that's that's just what I wanted. I wanted that emotional tether. I wanted that emotional urgency, if you will. I mean, in some ways, I wanted it to read like a memoir, which was interesting because I had just written a memoir. Um, so I was, you know, you, you have to be careful with that. You know, I, I, novel is not memoir. Um, you know, my dear friend Keith, who died of AIDS, did not live in Paris. <laughs> you know, it's again how we, we borrow, we borrow. But um, we all, I think, as a writer, I carry these searing, searing emotional scenes that I know I have to try to render. And that was one of them, particularly that there's a scene near the end of the book that I really needed to render. Um, so um, yeah, how much can narrative hold? I, I call it sort of weaving or th- like pulling threads. How many threads can you pull? Um, and I, I think I tested the limits. <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. I, I think um, it was definitely something that kept me reading and kept me reading. And it wasn't just because I knew I was going to be talking to you. Well, so I, I think you were very successful at that. Thank and, you so um, much. I also know that it caused me to really think about the work that you do as a teacher. I know that you are a co-founder of The Telling Room here in Portland. And there's a lot of work being done with The Telling Room and um, people from other countries who have children, usually from other countries who have stories to tell. And this really was not only in your book, but also kind of was a theme that was picked up in the charter school article that you've written for Maine Magazine. Talk to me about education and why education has become so important to you. Hmm. Well, I think it's um, distilled back to story. It's storytelling for me. 
Um, and for me, it was um, having incredible English teachers uh, who were really writing teachers for me turn lights on. Um, I have been doing readings in the state, and my sixth grade English teacher has showed up, my seventh grade English teacher, and it's so amazing. These people were the ones that handed me, you know, The Bridge to Terabithia, which was a book that, you know, changed my life. And here they are, and here, and, and now I can say, I'm, you know, I've written stories because I was inspired by you. Um, so I think, you know, not to sentimentalize it, I really needed to, to say, hey, this relationship between a teacher and a student can be life-changing. It's really important. And so often all we hear that the, a child was saved, like they were on the edge and they were saved because one teacher, you know, reached out, did a little bit more. Um, and that's where I put Willie. I put her in a refugee center. She doesn't have any idea what she's really doing in Paris at this center. A friend has talked her into it. Um, how, how much will she help? Um, and to tie it back to sort of the landscape here in Maine, um, you know, I was asked to go do a little tour of, of charter schools um, for Maine Magazine. And that was an incredible opportunity to sort of take a peek and say, okay, what, what, what are you trying to do here um, on, a, on a teacher level? And I talked to a ton of kids um, at three of our charter schools, and um, the refrain was all the same. And it, it's really simple. They want teachers who listen to them. Um, they want to be heard. Um, they would love a little less testing. <laughs> They'd like to go outside more. You know, um, it was very poignant. And, and really the most poignant piece of all, and, and this goes for all of our students across Maine, um, and I, I need to say that we're looking closer at charters because they're the newest to the table, but boy, there's amazing teaching going on in, in all of our public schools and teachers that are so passionate and innovative. Um, but all of these kids talked about this very essential need to fit in. And that, that really um, was very moving to me in that sort of how, and, and John Denary, who's the head of school at the Harpswell Coastal Academy, a brand new charter school that I, I um, looked at hard for the piece, he used the word comfortable. Students have to be comfortable before they'll start to actually learn. So you can call it what you want, fitting in, feeling nurtured, feeling comfortable. But I think that's something that the charter schools are looking hard at. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The interest was always there, but the motivation to become a financial advisor came from the students that I taught about the relevance of math and money. Now, if I had to guess, I spend the majority of my time teaching again, and not necessarily about stocks, bonds, and key economic indicators. Most of my time is spent teaching people how to really develop a healthy relationship with their money. I help them to look at it as a living, changing, dynamic thing that contributes to their health and well-being. I have to say I do get some pretty quizzical looks when I first float the concept of money as a, as a living thing. But take a moment to ponder this idea. Do you have the same relationship with money as 10 years ago? Do you think it will be the same in another 10? See, as you grow and evolve, so does your relationship with money and what it can do for you. 
Understanding how your concept of money impacts your life and how you can live one that is more connected and fulfilling at all levels will help you realize that it's not always about accumulation, but more about relationship building. Money and education are changing. To learn more, like us on Facebook. Or go to our website, www.shepherdfinancialmain.com. I want to help you evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Susan, where did you go to school? I um, did went to rural school in Woolwich, Maine, from kindergarten to eighth grade. We were all in a in a one sort of building school, um, and then we went to the big city of Bath across the river. That was very exciting, and I went there for two years, and then. Um, my parents and I looked around and realized that I was stagnating and that I, I had this huge appetite, particularly for stories. And um, then I did go out of the state. I went to boarding school for two years uh, at Andover, which wasn't so far away. And that was, um, it was the perfect time for me. It was, it was a perfect mix. I knew, I knew where I'd come from, and then I, I sort of saw this huge landscape of learning that was out there. And then I kind of never looked back in terms of my appetite for, for learning. Did you at any time ever feel this outsider thing that you describe in your novel, in your memoir, and even in this charter school piece that you've written? Have I felt like the outsider in my life? Well, I think, uh, you know, going through your education. Um, absolutely. I mean, that's what's so poignant about the kids I talk to is it. I remember feeling like the biggest outsider in the world when I drove across the Kennebec River to go to the Bath Junior High because I was from Woolwich. And so how would I ever fit in? You know, um, because the, the social parameters are so delicate and nuanced, you know, in ninth grade. And we forget that, I think, as adults. And, and I was seeing that so clearly in these um, conversations I was having with girls in, in the charter schools. And Frankly, a lot of them were trying charter because the social piece wasn't working in the other schools. So they were, they were taking a risk, in my opinion. They were, they were really trying um, something new, and they didn't know how it was going to go. As I'm reading this article on the charter schools, I like the fact that we're looking at different um, areas of interest for kids. Um, you talked to individuals from the main academy of natural science sciences and that's 
I love the fact that we're here in Maine, and there's a school that's actually called the Maine Academy of Natural Sciences, because we there is so much of this out that we live in, but we don't always have a chance to actually um, observe it. Yeah, I mean, you forget what a rural state we are, and how much agriculture sort of is the backbone of our state and, and was. So what they're doing up uh, in Fairfield at the Maine Academy is saying, um, here's how you grow a sustainable garden. Here's how you fix a tractor. You know, here's how you um, build vegetable beds in a, in a year-round greenhouse that they just built. Um, so I think those the missions of these charter schools that I looked at were very um, distilled. You know, they're they're trying to cut a very narrow path. Um, and you know they're very honest about it at, at the main academy. Not everyone there, as um, as their wonderful principal Emmanuel Pariser said, not everyone here wants to grow carrots. <laughs> um, so they have to figure that out, and they do. I think they're very very nimble up there, and they're very um, clear. They are working with disengaged kids, disenchanted kids. How do they win them back? I think one of the most moving lines in the whole piece for me was when Emmanuel. Pariser says, um, it's up to us to spark their imagination again and help them grow their confidence. How do we do that? Um, because he doesn't want to lose any kids. You also spoke with individuals at the Harpswell Coastal Academy. How is their focus different? Um, entirely different uh, world there, um, down the, the, the Harpswell Neck. Very rural, um, small old elementary school that was sitting vacated in the community said, okay, you want to put a charter school here? We'd love something in this building. Um, the mission of that school is in, you know, intrinsically tied to Harpswell, the town. And um, it sounds like a wonderful, wonderful premise. Let's have a school that um, looks at um, the um, watershed and, you know, the marine uh, industry that lives in Harpswell. Look, let's look at the working waterfront. Let's have the students mapping um, coves for data on seaweed and snails. Um, so, uh, again, the, the goals are really, um, they're really exciting. And, you know, I caught them all in day, I mean, it was like day six. So... Um, a lot of things had yet to shake out. Um, and I was, I, every time I left these schools, I thought, hats off to the teachers <laughs> because there's a lot of work to be done. At the same time, you have in past articles written for Maine Magazine um, profiles on people like Dala Vipkar, who is a Maine-based artist. And so this is somebody, this is an individual who's at one would say, the other end of her life. She's in her 90s, I believe. She's very well known internationally. And yet early on, her family and she had to make a decision to not kind of swim with the rest of the fishes, but go in a different direction. And it did give her great success. So is it interesting for you to be able to say, okay, kids, you know, if we can spark your interest in a way that's different than what you're already getting, you, we really could be setting you up for some interesting success that we don't even, we can't even define at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, the way that that people like Emmanuel Pariser up at, at Means and John Denary and uh, I spoke with Adam Burke at the Baxter Academy, um, 
it the idea is let's let's um, let's shake things up and let's look at um, place-based learning. Let's look at um, very individualized learning, and let's see what happens when we kind of divorce ourselves from um, pinning all these expectations on standardized tests. You know, let's free the children up. I mean, it means they're they're wonderfully articulate about their skepticism about standardized tests. They're, they're not working for a lot of our kids. And, and, um, and yet a lot of our kids are incredibly capable. So that's, that's the beauty, I think, of, of what's happening at Means is you get all this excitement and um, you, you can sense that the kids are sort of, they've been liberated from um, all the downsides of, of standardized testing. Now, if you test well, that's a walk in the park. You're all you're you're all set. But what happens to the kids who are extremely bright and, and don't test well at all? Well, I agree with you on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, I've had lots of standardized tests in my life as a doctor. I'm actually studying for another standardized <laughs> test even now. We keep every year, every ten years, we have to get board certified again. Um, and just because we can take tests well, I think sometimes we still feel like the education doesn't quite fit us. So I, I think that's the other piece of it, is are there kids also out there who might test well, but still don't really quite feel like the educational system fits them in some way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree with you completely. And in, in fact, I, what I heard was some of the kids who test well, they just surf. They just surf. I think that's very common, actually. Right, and they're not—they're equally disengaged. Um, you know, at the telling room, I've always said that we are only as good as our uh, latest teacher. And I just felt that over and over during this charter school piece for Maine Magazine, which was, um, who do we have in the classroom today? You know, how are you interacting with these kids? The kids want to be heard. They—they they want dialogue. Every single kid I talked to used the word one-on-one, one-on-one conversation with teacher. You know, want more, please. Nowhere on, in this article did I hear um, public schools are less than ideal. We don't like public schools. Um, you know, public schools are doing the wrong thing. I never heard that. What I heard was really what the charter school champions have been saying consistently, which is, here's another option, and maybe in exploring this other option, we can make education better for everyone, public schools, um, kids who aren't, who are disenchanted with public schools, teachers. So I think it's an interesting line to walk. My mother's a public school teacher, has been for many years, and I know she has thoughts about charter schools, but maybe if we can look at it as, okay, this could make it better for all involved, and how can we build on that? Well, it's interesting you say that because I also did a profile for Alan Leishness from the Gulf of Maine Research Institute for the same education issue for Maine Magazine, and I put it to him. And he he said in the piece, um, I thought rather compellingly, the jury's out. Uh, He said, but what's the risk of sitting back and watching and seeing what happens when we do more individualized lines of learning? We don't have anything to lose by seeing if that works because then we could all benefit from that data because we're not going to take a bet right now and implement it, you know, statewide. Let's, let's wait and see. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, we, don't, we can't be naive about this. There's a really small pie of education money out there. 
Um, and that's, that's the controversy. That's what I call the, the, the main hot potato in the piece, right? And, and we're not done talking about that. Well, that will be very interesting to see how that all plays out. And um, maybe we'll have you back again in a few years <laughs> as we're a few years more into the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. And we can talk about that and probably your next book or so. Yeah, that would um, be great. But we've been really... Um, honored to have you in here talking to us today to, about Paris Was the Place, your new novel, and also about the articles that you've written for Maine Magazine. Um, thanks for coming in, Susan Conley. Thanks. It was a uh, great pleasure. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. One of the best parts of my job is teaching, being able to share knowledge with clients that helps them see the bigger picture of their financial operations. It's very rewarding. When that happens and people start to not only understand but practice what they learn, businesses become more efficient and continue to thrive. So if you have a question about your financial operations, raise your hand. We can help you find the answer. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces Please visit the Seabag store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. Education is a topic that we have addressed often on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast. And the way that we offer education within the state of Maine is something that is of great interest. There are a lot of um, relationships between health and education and wellness, and it's something that we think is important. So today we have with us Glenn Cummings, Dr. Glenn Cummings, who is the president and the executive director of the Maine Academy of Natural Sciences. Mm -hmm. And we also have John Denary, head of school at the Harpswell Coastal Academy. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having us. Susan Conley uh, of Maine Magazine wrote an article about your schools and about chartering, um, well, charter schools here in Maine for, for Maine Magazine coming up in November. And she had some interesting thoughts and some very interesting experiences with the students at your schools. You are offering a very unique way to educate our children. Why did you become first interested in education? I guess I'll ask Glenn first, and you're Dr. Cummings because you, you have a PhD in education. <laughs> I, I, I have a doctorate in education, uh, but it's really in higher education. So uh, 
Well, I, I, I had started my career you know, back when I was 22. When I came back to Maine from graduate school and, and uh, taught uh, at social studies at, at Gorham High School. And, uh, you know, I thought I would just do it a couple of years, maybe go to law school in my late 20s or mid-20s. And um, it, it captured my imagination. It, it, it drained every piece of energy out of me in, in a good way, I think. And, and um, you know, I think for me it began like this rubrics cube of like how do you – how do you get better? How do you um, how do you move things in, in, in parts that actually make education better for more kids? And I could see where the programs that we had certainly in those days at Gorham High School were working, but I could also see where, boy, if we could just do it differently a little bit, we could bring in that other 30% that's really not uh, engaged. You know, they may be doing their work, but they're not really fully engaged and not reaching their full potential. And so I guess that, that challenge kind of hooked me early. And what about you, John? Um, actually, a kind of different story. Um, in high school myself, large suburban high school, was not um, feeling that it was relevant or very useful. Went to college, left college, worked off and on. It was, pr- it was 10 years before I actually uh, finished my bachelor's degree and then worked some more. Um, ran a nonprofit uh, arts collaborative in Kentucky for a while. And at 30, went back and got a Master of Arts in teaching. So I didn't start teaching until I was, you know, um, had, had done a whole bunch of jobs, truck driving and pizza making and all kinds of things. Um, worked at Pat's Pizza in Orono for a very short time. Uh, and so uh, I think for me it really comes out of uh, a sense that uh, for many, many, many kids, especially those kids in poverty or, or rural uh, kids. My mom grew up in rural Maine. Um, that a lot about what schools were doing just weren't working for way too many kids, but have fierce, fierce commitment to the public school system. So not feeling like the solution to that was to sort of create a separate track of schools, but really to try to work in public schools to dramatically reinvent them. What is it about Maine that um, is so unique, that has so many students um, really kind of needing to navigate things in a different way? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure Maine is that unique. I think when you look nationally, you, you, the statistics are, are even more startling and, and uh, quite frankly, you know, dismal when it comes to high school graduations. And so when you look at how many kids are voting with their feet in terms of leaving, especially large urban high schools, it's significant. In some places in Chicago and Philadelphia, you're talking about 50 or 60 percent between their freshman and their senior year never actually complete. So Maine's graduation rate is, is much higher. It's gone from about 80 percent up to about 82 and a half percent. So we're seeing a little bit of progress in the last couple of years as we spent more time focusing on legislators have gotten I think over the last 10 years much more focused about how to you know you know monitor I think the the success of, of avoiding dropouts so when you really look at how we're engaged um, it, it, you know nationally it's it's um, it's of great concern but in Maine specifically we definitely have you know, large segments of rural poverty and that seems to be correlated to dropout uh, and then we have you know increasing just poverty in general even in, in, in areas that you might not expect it so those things are definitely contributing and then 
then there's just the, it may not be related to poverty, it may be simply that the, the way in which we go about high school, for example, and we're a high school, um, there's a lot of, you know, um, I guess we'd call it sort of sit and get, you know, so you have to sit there for five and a half hours and, you know, sort of digest information and kind of put it back out. There, the, the models that I think John and I are trying to play with is how do you get real-world challenges, authentic kind of assessments, and how do you build units around those things that, that would challenge students in an interesting way but also add value to the community? So we're trying to think about new ways to get students to feel differently about what they're doing and why they're doing it. I, I would just add one thing. It's not that makes Maine unique, but it is... Um, a particular challenge to do sustainable school reform in rural areas where the economics of a state with 1.2, 1.3 million people and the geography that we have are very, very different. So when you have a, a New York or I've you know done some work in New York and Boston and urban areas where you really can create innovation within a large system, um, for instance, the, the small schools movement in New York has really produced some documentable excellent results for kids. Mm-hmm. But the, the economics of Maine don't lend themselves to easily reinventing what has increasingly become a larger school system towards small schools. So if relationships are what works for kids and relationships flourish in smaller schools, my career has been you know a lot of projects that are trying to demonstrate that small schools are sustainable over time but need very, very different economic models, different teaching models in order to make them sustainable. Each of you has looked at education um, sort of from an eagle's view. I know that, Glenn, you've been involved in politics. You were the Speaker of the House. Um, You worked for the Obama administration. Um, John, you're a member of the Kappa class of the Institute for Civic Leadership. So to each of you, it's much bigger than just what do we do within a school. It's how do we um, make inroads or connections? How do we understand education from a community perspective? Talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, there's definitely, I mean, it, I remember being in the Legislative Education Committee early in my career and uh, the sort of the crossfire of politics is very complicated in, in Maine, particularly around high property value communities versus low property value communities and how much state aid and where, you know, I represented Portland, which is uh, neither one of those really. And so we had to, we were um, certainly often challenged politically to get our voice, uh, get our voice heard. Uh, you know, from our, my perspective, first of all, everybody believes deeply, you know, usually if you talk to people, you know, at a, at a party or something about education, and their eyes sort of glaze over. But if you get them to talk about their education and their experience and their commitment, people have very passionate views about it. And so the community, certainly from a, from a personal perspective, people are often uh, uh, very clear about what they like and what they don't necessarily like about education. They have very definitive views, which certainly in our, in our world of charter schools, you know, it's always interesting to hear what people have to say. We, we have tended to have kind of a, a, a nice blessing in terms of how people look at our school, the Maine Academy for Natural Sciences, because we try to go after kids who are really struggling, um, not necessarily academically, but they, they may be struggling in a variety of ways with school, socially and emotionally. 
and feeling like they need a new experience and they want to engage in the curriculum in a different way. And so I think we tend to sort of stay out of some of that politics, which is which has not been the case for all the charter schools in Maine have often run run aground a little bit with that. But but our perspective is um, let's focus on what's really good for the kids. And if we can prove that there's a challenge that the kids can't get met at that local public school or even other private school, then there's a place for us to give it a, give it a try. I think I would add that um, <clears throat> we've evolved to a system of public schooling where there are certain ways in which the community or the parent community is involved in schools and, and many ways in which they're not. And often they're not involved deeply in what I would call the actual work of students in schools. And <clears throat> our notion of community-based or place-based education really has those students out <clears throat> um, studying the clam flats which are under threat in Harpswell and and preparing informed reports to testify about before town committees and to interact with the shellfish warden and those kinds of things and and you know our kids will be going out on a lobster boat this weekend Casco Bay does a lot of those things too but the idea that the work of the school is not just bringing parents in for boosters or or for bake sales but f for letting the kids and the community members know that their work is shared work and that if they're very separate, it's going to be very difficult for that gulf between what the students feel is relevant and what the community expects to ever be bridged. But once you put those people together, often very, very different people in terms of how they define their adult lives, but you put them in a learning situation with students and some of those um, gaps diminish quite quickly for the benefit of both the adult and the kid. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. I was in Quasic this past weekend. It's up by the Canadian border. And looking up at the vast sky it's so dark up there, and you can actually see the Milky Way from spanning the entire night sky, which is quite incredible. One of the things I do in the landscape is put in large, flat stones, seating height, roughly 18, 20 inches above grade. And they're perfect for uh, gazing up at the night sky. You lie on your back, maybe there's a fire pit next to you, and you're looking up and gazing at the night sky, the vastness, the incredible amount of space and stars. The night landscaping is particularly mysterious and I think that that's one of the things that I love about a night landscape is the fact that it's it's obscure in ways and it becomes visible and then obscure and it, it plays with shadows and, and light and there's a whole art to putting that together and I love working with it. The clients love it as well. I'm Ted Carter. And if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. We at the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour know that our listeners understand the importance of the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Travis Bullier, a Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. How much more complicated than the human body can we get? And on top of that, health care. And health insurance? At Black Bear Medical, we strive to educate our customers. From the over 900 products we offer to the billing of insurance, we are here as a lifeline to your health. 
More important than the medical supplies, home medical equipment, daily living aids, and sport health products that we offer is our attention to your health questions and insurance inquiries. Let's face it, who has the time to read up on all the information out there concerning your health and wellness? Let us work with your doctors to find the right product for you and empower you to be the best and most educated you you can be. Visit us at blackbearmedical.com, like us on Facebook, and see what products and advice we can offer you or someone you care about. Harpswell Coastal Academy is doing its own form of fundraising, um, and I know that you're going into a, even a workshop today as we're, as we're talking, um, trying to understand how best to work on the development of your um, financial support, I guess. I mean, that, that is an interesting thing for teachers and administrators to have to think about it in a really different way. Well, we have, so, so the, the, uh, Glenn talked about it too. So in a traditional public school, you, um, you're not going out, you're buying buses, but you're not starting a bus fleet from scratch and you have a building. Well, we have a building that was a school, um, that was built, eventually expanded to, to serve maybe 110, 120 elementary school kids. We're designed to be a school of 240 to 280 students, which is, I think, the smallest we can be and make the sustainable small school economics work over time, um, which means we're going to need a building. Um, and we, So on the one hand, we're keeping a vital community building that was probably going to be underused or possibly not used at all. We're keeping that in the community. We're able to sort of reuse that building. But we are going to need... Um, from scratch, you know, significant facilities over time. And that kind of, it does, again, motivate that community to say, so what do we need to do? On the, the other thing that I think is worth noting is that Harpswell, which has the, uh, at least at one point, had the widest economic disparity in income in, in the state of Maine, the, the, the difference between the poorest people in Harpswell and the wealthiest people was the largest on average. And, um, but it's a it's a community that is you know our school is 14 miles down a peninsula and um, those kids have been if you're in middle or high school have been driving up the peninsula through Brunswick to to uh, Mount Ararat High School for years and as that education asset leaves the community it becomes very difficult to draw families who can see themselves living in that community over time if that's the the the, the bargain they have to make to do so is we're going to put our kids on a bus for an hour in each direction. Um, we're able to eventually bring 2.4, 2.5, maybe $3 million of economic activity to a very small town. And that's something that, that has been leaving. If you go up to Washington County or you go up to, to other parts of Maine, when, when Lubeck lost its school, they, they fought. You know that story somewhat, Glenn, is they fought and fought and fought to keep that school because the economics of keeping that school were bigger than just the dollar per student economics of the actual educational uh, endeavor. That's another thing that I think is really important that these investing in schools in many communities in Maine, if you look at not just the efficiency, Tom Shepard, who's been on the show, talks about that, not just efficiency, but productivity. If you invest in productivity, sometimes you want to make some calculations that aren't just about short-term efficiency. Each of you also has links to um, Tasco Bay High School, which um, we've featured on the show before. We had Derek Pierce, who's the principal of Tasco Bay High School, and I believe that they're 10 years in now from doing the type of expeditionary learning that they've been promoting. Um, John, you have 
teaching experience there, I believe. No, I worked for Expeditionary Learning. You worked for, for Expeditionary years, Learning. Yeah. And Glenn, you have at least a child that... I have two, actually. A senior and uh, a junior. So my son and my, my wife teaches uh, English there. So. Um, so why... I mean, you are already interested in Expeditionary Learning. You, were, you already... Each of you had a slightly different but still um, important link to this process. Why was this something that was so necessary to each of you as individuals? Well, I'll start by saying that. So I came out of an organization called the Coalition of Essential Schools, which was this founded by this guy, Ted Sizer. came out of the original Annenberg Institute for School Reform, which was a 25 now, or maybe even 30 years ago, attempt to sort of reinvent American schools. Expeditionary Learning is a is a is a is a large you know, national nonprofit that has that has roles in over two hundred schools around the country. So they are while there's also there's sort of a small e small l expeditionary learning. It is also very much a a um, a model of working with schools over time. So so they hired me to work for them to help get this school started and to work with other schools around Maine. Um, and I think what so what I would say is the the approaches that I'm very um, uh, versed in that come through a couple movements are small schools, personalized schools, project-based learning. And expeditionary learning is one of the many places that that can land. What they have is an extraordinarily strong um, and well-defined set of models so that when they can go into to work with a school, they can really say, this is what we're going to do. The it is pretty well defined. I think King Middle School is, is, is an extraordinary example in Portland. That's been a 15-year journey. But what they're able to do with a 600, you know, um, Casco Bay, as proud as I am of that, I helped get that running. And it, it is a wonderful story. But starting from scratch is easier to build those kinds of results than starting with a school in the middle. And that's one of the reasons why I do startups is because I think you can get where you're going. You're more likely to get where you're going. Taking an existing public school and transforming it around these kinds of notions, which is what's happened at King Middle School over time, that really is an extraordinary story and a very rare one. Um, you know, Glenn, having worked at, in the administration, knows that the turnaround process, which, for instance, the Gates administration, uh, the Gates Foundation, invested a bunch of money in turning around schools turns out to be extraordinarily difficult. The, the very few successes um, are, are exceptions to a very, very long. So that's I'm, I'm committed to those things because I think they work for kids. Uh, I think that they, um, uh, if, you, if you look at a challenge, a group of students whose needs are not being met, um, th the kinds of educational practices that cause relationships to be necessary as opposed to be optional, which is what small schools can do, that's the way to go. What I like about the the fact that I'm able to sit with both of you right now is that you each are representing charter schools, but you're each representing a very unique school, a school that is um, linked to the community in which it's actually located. Uh, the Harpswell Coastal Academy has a slightly different way of approaching education based on where it is. Um, the Maine Academy of Natural Sciences has a, its own unique approach. How are some of the um, attributes of the community, how are they working their way into your curricula? 
I mean, from our point of view, obviously, agriculture is a key component of what we do. We have 2,300 acres um, that we're surrounded by. We have a community college that just came to our campus, and we're going to move the main campus of KVCC, Kennebec Valley Community College, to us. And they have the first, they're beginning the first ag tech program in the state. So we have a natural sequence in which our students can evolve to. But we've had a long history. You know, Reverend Hinckley, who started in the 1880s with the farm, believed that the farm had its own redemption values and that it, it learned you could learn about nature about human nature about biology by about botany and horticulture and of course agriculture and about livestock so that that in itself was rich in learning and meaning for kids but also in terms of learning how to be disciplined take care of things to be a steward of, of nature and all of those things seem to fit in with a, a recent generation of, of interest in the, the Skowhegan Food Hub, which is looking at local, organic, sustainable food systems uh, and trying to find ways in which they can get that market up and going. So we feel like we can we stepped into the middle of something that seems to be uh, certainly a regional trend, if not a national trend, to look at our food systems and think about, you know, how, how do we feed ourselves? What, you know, what is it that we're actually putting in our mouths? And that trend seems to be something that we could build on from an academic point of view. People who are interested in learning more about the Maine Academy of Natural Sciences, which is located at the Goodwill Hinckley campus, and also the Harpswell Coastal Academy, they can read Susan Conley's article on charter schools in Maine Magazine. How else can they find out about your schools? They can certainly go on our website if they go under um, Maine Academy for Natural Sciences. We have a website there. Um, also encourage them if they're looking at uh, visiting the school uh, to call Lisa Sandy. Uh, that's 238-4000, uh, 4000 and, and uh, just set up a time to come visit. Yep, for us, that would be Carrie Branson as our assistant head of school and director of operations, 833-3229. Uh, and, um, and we really do want people to come and see us. And uh, matter of fact, if you not only want to learn about the school, but have something you'd want to share with our students, call us up and we'll, we can give you an audience pretty easily. Our school is set up to facilitate having people come in or having our kids get out. And John, do you also have a website for the Harpswell Coastal yeah, Academy? Yeah, and it is the very long harpswellcoastalacademy.org. <laughs> Well, it's been a privilege to sit with the two of you today. We've been speaking with Dr. Glenn Cummings, the president and executive director of the Maine Academy of Natural Sciences, and also with John Denary, the head of school at the Harpswell Coastal Academy. Um, the fact that I was so fortunate to have you both in the same room at the same time and have the same conversation is wonderful, and thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 112, Chartering Education. Our guests have included Susan Conley, John Denary, and Glenn Cummings. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and Pinterest and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Chartering Education Show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast 
is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Our online producer is Katie Kelleher. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Thank you.